So uh, this morning, I want to open with a question, um, and it's maybe a question that most of you can relate to. Uh, have you ever had somebody tell you something and you knew, you, like you just knew, you could read it all over them, you knew that they didn't believe that thing that they told you? You knew that they didn't believe it. So um, I, uh, this, this happens a lot, I think, often in apologies sometimes. So uh, there are like the bad apologies that people give, which is, um, I'm sorry I made you feel that way, um, or, or I'm sorry that, that you took that the wrong way, right? So you're not actually sorry for anything, uh, except you're not sorry for your actions anyway, you're just sorry for the way the, the other person reacted to it. So uh, I was a children's pastor at one point, um, and uh, I got to see this a lot when I was working with kids. Uh, so, uh, so often, like the role that I would end up playing um, is uh, we had like something like 125 kids on a Sunday morning. On Awana, we, on Awana night, we had like, like 220 kids. And so I'm not actually, I don't play, I'm not with the kids most of the time. I'm functionally like a principal. Uh, and so when, uh, when the, the, the club directors for Awana, they're having to work with the kids. And, and if they have any kids who have any sort of discipline issues, I'm the guy that, that gets to work with those kids when they have those, those issues. And so uh, in, in these instances, what, what I would have to do is I'd have to, I'd have to sit down with the kid. I'd get down on their level and I'd talk to them and I'd have to explain. It's kind of like you do the little lecture thing. You have to make sure that the kids understand like why what they did was wrong. And then, and then you have to do this thing where, okay, now it's time for you to go apologize. Now you have to go say that you're sorry to, to whoever it is that you disturbed. So, um, so the kids, they go and then they say sorry. And then like five minutes later, they do the same thing that they just got in trouble for. Like, so that kid did not actually believe that they were sorry, that they, they, they didn't have any ounce of sorrow in their heart for what they've done. Uh, what, what happened was they, they just wanted to get off the hook, right? Because, the, you know, there's all sorts of threats like, you know, I'll tell your parents if, if we can't get through this, right? Which is not good, right? So, so kids are scared of these sorts of consequences. So, so they're really trying to avoid the consequences, but sorrow does not exist inside of them for what they've done. Um, okay, so uh, I'm the worst at this because I, I, I can feel in the moment genuinely bad about something that I have done wrong um, because I see that it has hurt you in some way. Uh, so, so uh, I have a problem. I leave socks all over the place. Uh, this is this is an issue for me, uh, and so I uh, when, I, I don't throw things into the the laundry basket, and I need to to do this more. And so, so my wife will say, Alex. You really, you just need to throw, it's, the laundry basket is literally five feet away from you. You don't have to leave it on the floor. Like you could, yes, you could throw it in there, Sandy. Yes, that's correct. You could just toss it in there, but instead you leave it on the floor. And so, and I know that this bothers my wife. And so I am, I am sorry for the way that she feels. I'm sorry that, that I am causing her some level of pain but I'm not going to change. Like, let's be real. 
It's not going to happen. I am not actually going to like start throwing my socks into the laundry basket. Um, I would love to think that I could, but it, it's not going to happen. And so, so um, actions, the actions that I take after the fact that I've said I'm sorry show that I don't actually believe that what I did is, is wrong. I'm just sorry that it can be bothersome at times. So, uh, so, um, there are, so, so these actions, they, they, what they actually do is they, they, can, they have the potential to convey certain beliefs. So let's talk about the kid who, who says they're sorry. Let's, maybe, they, maybe they take another kid's toy. Maybe that's their problem. And so they take the other kid's toy, and then they say, you have to sit with them, you have to explain it to them, get them to say sorry. And then they go and take that kid's toy again. So, so at best, what's happening, at best... For that child is that they just have no concept of, of really like w- what people's possessions are, right? So they, they go and they, they take and they don't really have a concern for that. At worst, that child thinks that they are entitled to every toy that other kids play with. Like that's the worst possibility. That's actually what they believe. Um, okay, so then let's talk about me leaving my socks on the floor. So at best, at best I'm forgetful. Uh, or uh, I'm, I'm careless, but at worst, at worst, I could like, there could be a belief under there that might say, uh, I believe it's my wife's job to pick up my socks, right? Oh, that's wrong. Yes, everybody went. Oh no, no, you better not believe that. That would not be good, right? Okay, so there are these beliefs that are undergirding. My actions. Now, I know I can, I can intellectually affirm that that is wrong, that that is a wrong thought. But my actions, my actions show that I might believe something else, right? So in the world of religion, we actually call this difference um, uh, explicit theology versus implicit theology. This is the words that I was given to articulate this kind of thing in seminary. So explicit theology versus implicit theology, or the other way you could say this is, is known theology versus lived or actual theology. So known theology versus, versus what we live. Because in all honesty, the things that we do, um, we might know something, but, but the things that we do, they come out of what we really believe. So we might be able to affirm something in our heads, with our mouths, in our minds, but, but the things that we do come from what we actually believe. So known theology uh, is what you claim to be true about God, what you claim to be true about yourself and what you claim to be true about the world. But lived theology is what your actions show that you believe about God, yourself, and the world. Okay, so uh, I want to talk to you about something. This, this thing is called Christian sanctification. This is, uh, this is a, a word that we use often, and it's a, it's a big word, but I want to explain, I want to simplify it for you. Sanctification, Christian sanctification, is the process by which what we know to be true about God actually takes root in our lives and becomes displayed through how we live. So, so we actually start in a place where we believe something different than what God wants us to believe. And sanctification is the process by which what God wants us to believe actually starts to take root in our lives and, and, and determine, govern how we operate. So um, Paul, he's been talking about Jesus's lordship uh, as, as we get to verse 5 in Colossians, because that's where we're going to be at today. And if you're curious, we're in Colossians 3, verse 5. Um, he's been talking about Jesus' lordship, how Jesus is the king 
of all existence. And he he constantly reminds his readers of their identity. So he, he always, all the time, is reminding them, like, you died with Christ. This is who you were, but you have now died to your old self, and you are alive with Christ, the glory of God. Christ is now the king of your life. He keeps, like, he says it over and over and over again, so much so to the point where the readers might, like, start to get sick of it because he says it so often. Like, after every thought that he has, he finishes it by saying, for you were dead, but now you are alive in Christ. And so now he's going to, to transition into the, the specifics of what a changed life looks like. So he's going to get really, really specific with the Colossians because he's looking at a people in a particular culture and he sees some really specific ways that, that they need to change, that they need to be separated from the culture that they live in. That this group of people, there, there are some really specific ways that they can actually display that Jesus has rule in their lives. And so this is what he says in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So apparently there are things that the Colossians actually need to kill. Like uh, Violence is not advocated often for the Christian, only in the circumstance where the Christian has to get rid of something in their life. That, that he actually uses the word, you need to put it to death, you need to execute these things that are earthly in you. And so when he says earthly, if you could look back to verse 2, Colossians 3, verse 2, um, he says the things, he talks about the things that are above, set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. So when he comes here to verse 5, what he's doing is he's carrying on that thought about things that are on the earth. And literally, when it says what is earthly in you, literally what he's saying is in your earthly parts. So, so make sure that you put to death what, whatever is in your earthly parts, the earthly way that you use your body. That's what he's saying. Put to death these, these earthly ways that you use your body. So in order to be able to show that they are raised with Christ, the Colossians, they actually need to put an end to, to, to earthly ways of using their body. So what Paul is going to address here, um, this is not uh, comprehensive for, for the kinds of things that the Christian needs to get rid of. Um, and the reason I say that is because Paul is looking at a particular people in a particular culture, place, and time, and he sees some really specific ways that they need to be different from that culture. And so, so there, are, uh, there are 18 things that Paul could write about things that we need to get rid of in our lives and things that we need to aspire to but he focuses on these things because of the realities of the Colossian culture. And so uh, I have a question. Uh, We're going to work off of two questions today. This first question is this. Is Jesus king over my body? Is Jesus king over my body? Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you or in your earthly parts. And then he says, Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Okay, so, uh, personal note, when I came to this passage, didn't love the idea of preaching it. I, didn't, I was not excited to bring this passage before you because it's, it's, it's very direct, and quite honestly, like when we talk about the subject matter of this passage today, it can get a little awkward for Christians. Uh, it, it can get a little awkward to talk about in a public place. So, so it can be uncomfortable, and um, I, wanna, I, I don't love making people uncomfortable. You know, the elders and, uh, and I, we, we work together 
Um, and we did a little bit of personality assessment of each other, which is fun. is a good experience. And, um, and my personality type is like the personality type that likes to maintain peace, likes to keep everybody sort of even keel, right? So when I come to this passage, which is speaking very directly about certain things, like I don't, gosh, it's like, it's awkward. I had this uh, boss of mine who said, awkward is awesome. And I was like, what are you thinking? That's, that is like ludicrous. Why would you say that? Because, um, because I don't like setting people off. But the reality is, is that's what this passage does. It speaks very directly about certain things. So this is a list, um, preaching list. So this is like the second reason that I didn't love the idea of preaching, uh, preaching this passage today is because uh, this list um, is, uh, they're difficult to preach. Anytime you're dealing with a list, because lists don't often fit into one big idea, but they, they're, they're kind of all over the place. They point to a bunch of different things. Now, when I was like studying and trying to figure some stuff out about this, all the items, what I found is that all the items actually do exist within discernible categories. So, so this first category, it actually relates all of these, these words that he lists. He's relating them specifically to how we use our body. Um, so these aren't just random vices, but they're, they're two really clear categories that Paul has in mind for how the Colossians can actually live their lives differently than their culture around them. And the first category he's talking about is, is sexual sin. So every word in the list further expands. So he starts with the idea of, of sexual immorality. And every word in the list further expands our understanding of that category. So we know that these things are in the same category because the words are, are actually used in other places in Scripture, um, and, and the words refer to sins of a sexual nature. So, so sexual immorality is a general term. This is the first word in the list. It's a general term referencing sexual sin. And the, the gist of what it gets at is that, um, in general, Sex is good and right in the context that God created it for. Like this is, this is what Paul understands. This is what everybody who's ever read scripture understands, that, that God created sex as a good and right thing, a gift. But then what happens is that, that um, people have actually taken it out of the context that God intended for it. So the context is marriage between a man and a woman. And so, so what this is, is it's intimacy birthed out of a God-ordained commitment. So, so then sexual immorality is then, when he says it, he's referencing anything that basically removes sex from the boundary that God had ordained it from the beginning. And then he goes on. He says impurity. So impurity is actually used in reference often to, uh, to cult worship, to, to, to prostitution. Often in OT, uh, Old Testament law, it's used in uh, reference to sexual uh, sin. Evil desire. So he goes a little bit further. This is the word, actually, that Jesus uses. He's talking about lust here. This is the word that Jesus uses uh, when Jesus says, okay, um, you may have not have committed adultery, but I tell you that everybody who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery in his heart. So this is the same word that Jesus uses. This is how Jesus says that these actions, they actually exist beyond your, your, your physical being, and they go down to the root of the matter, which is in your heart. And then he finally looks at covetousness. Now, covetousness isn't typically used in, in relation to this category, but um, what covetousness does, so, so if you look at the Ten Commandments, um, uh, the, Moses, he, he takes us through the first nine of them. And then the last one, number ten, is covetousness. And, and 
Covetousness is like the, the one that is not related to specific actions, but it actually gets to matters of the heart. And if you look at covetousness, like the problem with each of the other ones before it is that somebody's trying to take something that doesn't belong to them. That, that it comes, each of those actions comes out of a de- desire or a heart that says something belongs to me that doesn't actually belong to me. The root problem with all of the other, the, the, all of the other sins in the Ten Commandments is that they are at the root covetous. And so, um, so when, when Paul talks about covetousness here, He's using it to relate to the other words that he uses in the list. And, and the problem with covetousness, he says, is that it is idolatry. That's, that's the core issue. This is the core thing that he's relating to sexual sin. So I want to talk about why Paul has such a problem with it. I think uh, there are three major problems with sexual sin that I want to list out here. The first one is that it is the ultimate decision-making realm for what I will give God authority over, particularly in the culture that we live in. Because the culture that we live in says that you get to decide what you're going to do with your body. That's, what, that's the message that we constantly receive. But, but, but what Scripture tells us is that if Jesus has lordship over our body, that that no, we don't get to decide. We give that decision-making authority over to him. This is how we show in our lives that Jesus has some level of rule, which is why Paul calls it idolatry, and we'll get that, to that in a second. The second major problem is that it devalues the image of God in other people by turning them into objects. It devalues God's good and right and holy image that he put inside of each and every single human being. And this is particularly true with pornography. uh, Because what it does is it turns people into objects. Uh, And I don't know if you're aware of this, but but pornography actually is like fueling the the sex trafficking industry right now. It is one of the main things fueling the sex trafficking industry. So that that every time a person partakes in this, they're not only devaluing, but but oftentimes the people who are on the other side are, are not engaging willingly. Like, you have to understand what is happening in this realm, that, that people are, are trampling over other people who have been created in God's good image. The third major problem is that it takes something that God made a good and right and holy gift take something that God intended for his glory and it uses it for our good towards a selfish end. It uses it for our own purposes. And this is why Paul ultimately calls it idolatry because at the core of sexual sin is a heart that is not primarily concerned with worship of God alone, but is concerned with what I want. And then verse 6. Paul says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So there's something that I think we have a hard time understanding. Um, and I think it's because of the way that culture wires us. I, I, we have come to view sex as something that's really, really mundane. Um, that uh, So much so to the point that we decide that we can do whatever we want to do with it. Like we get to make that decision. Um, the problem is, 
sex is something deeply, deeply personal to God. So imagine you created this good gift for people. Like you created people and then you gave them this gift to like be able to relate to each other, to be able to love each other, like in, in a perfect union. And that, re- that union is actually the reflection of, of the relationship that you have, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like you, get, you create this gift and you give it to people. And then what happens is that the people that you created it for, the people that you intended it for, for their good, for your glory, they used it as the primary means by which they show you how little they care for your rule, how little they care for your influence, for what you have to say in their life. So so what Paul indicates to us in verse 6 is that God's final judgment of the world, the judgment that is coming, is happening in part because we have taken something that is so personal to God and we've corrupted it. Verse 7, he goes on and says, In these two um, you once walked when you were living in them. Paul, he recognizes that, that one major piece of the Colossians' former life was the role that sex played, and this actually makes sense. The, the culture that they lived in, um, in the Roman world, uh, uh, promiscuity was, was a very common thing. Um, in fact, you want to know how corrupted this gets. Pedophilia in, in the Roman world was actually a really accepted thing. Uh, prostitution actually was a regular part of the cult worship that people engaged in. Roman sexuality had a really, really low view of womanhood. So all of these things show us that, that the Roman world had actually extremely corrupted this thing that God intended for his glory. There was, a Coloss- there, was a, there was a culture surrounding sex that the Colossians, that they would have been formed by, that they would have had their minds shaped by. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, you used to follow the whims of culture in this area, but now every piece, every single piece of who you are is to be brought under the rule of Jesus, including this, because this is the place where really it's going to be determined. Are you going to submit this? To Jesus. And the reality is we have um, a culture that has given us its own broken sexual ethic. So the overwhelming ethic is that every person gets to decide what they want to do with their sexuality as long as uh, whoever is involved consents. That's, that, that's the uh, sort of agreed upon social contract in our culture. So Paul, uh, he would look at us too. He would look at our culture and say, yes. You have been formed by the way your culture thinks about this issue. And you used to be a part of that, but now you've been brought under Jesus' rule. So I want to push pause for a second. Um, Because there is the reality that um, people have actually royally failed in this area. And and you might be in that category. I don't know what that looks like for you. Um, And the reality is personal sexual brokenness can be one of the hardest things for a person to overcome. It can be one of the most challenging things. I've walked with multiple guys. I myself have my own story of how the Lord had overcome that in me. And the wonder is, the wonder is the same God that we have offended with this thing. It's the same God who sent his only son to die so that we wouldn't have to pay the price for our sin. 
so that we wouldn't have to pay the price for the offense that we have caused. He's the same God who looks at every believer in Jesus and loves them like his own children. Because the reality is, if you have at all had any level of struggle in this area, if you have any past pain in this area, I had a former pastor who often said that the three worst wounds that a person can experience are are dad wounds, church wounds, and sex wounds. These are the three uh, kinds of wounds. And so maybe you find yourself wounded in this area. It can often be easy to see yourself as dirty or, or unclean or impure, and unable to approach God as broken. And the amazing truth is that in Jesus, God sees you as clean, as pure, as whole, as holy. So the path to seeing yourself that way, it, it can be difficult. And so if you find yourself in that place of struggle, if you find yourself in that place of even sensing that you have failed, um, I want to I encourage you to find a trusted brother or sister. Ask them to help you get connected to someone who can, who can maybe help in this process. Um, it would be wrong of me to just look at what Paul says is wrong and tell you it's wrong and not offer you the hope that is in Jesus because of it. All right, so, uh, so Paul's point is, if Jesus is really king of your life, you need to let him have authority here. Okay, so that's the first category, and then he, he moves, he deals with it, and then he moves on to the next category. And the next category is, um, is Jesus king over how I relate to others? Verse 8 says, but now... You must put them all away. And then he gives us our, our second list here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So the second category that Paul hi- highlights for us is words that damage. Words that damage. And um, the reason we know that he's talking about words here is because he takes that, that from your mouth actually modifies every single word in the list that he gives us. So when he says anger, he's talking about anger from your mouth, wrath from your mouth, malice from your mouth, slander from your mouth, obscene talk from your mouth. All of these things are things that we would use our tongues for, use our language to do. So, so um, I want to talk about each of the words. So he talks about anger and wrath. Whenever, so anger in general, anger is not a, a, a bad thing. Like anger can be righteous. We can have righteous anger in certain situations, right? Um, where we can see an injustice that has been, has gone wrong and we can be righteously angry. So let me talk about a category where it's okay for us to get righteously angry. In relation to the abortion issue in our country today, it is okay for us to get righteously angry because our government is systematically killing millions of babies. Okay, so this is okay to get righteously angry about. But I want to look at the word anger in connection to the word wrath. Because whenever those two words are used right next to each other, it's, it's pointing us to something really specific. And that really specific thing it's pointing us to is is the way God uses his righteous anger and wrath. Whenever those two words are used in connection to each other, in the Old Testament, it's always used as a characteristic, as, as something that God has inside of him, has towards other people. And so when, when we take anger and wrath, like that combination of things, when those are used to describe people, what it's using is it's saying that these human beings have, have these emotions, anger and wrath, and they justify them 
But, but these things belonging together, anger and wrath, they only, they only belong to God. They're his sovereign right as the king of the universe. And so when people take these emotions and they justify them, they tread on ground that is not theirs to tread on. And then he goes a step further with malice. Malice is indicative of evil. Um, so some level of evil that's behind the anger, an evil intention of the heart. Uh, slander. The word is literally blasphemy here. So, so the, the bringing, what it is defaming another person. Um, and, and what we need to understand is that when we slander another person, when we defame another person with our mouth, what we're actually doing is we're simultaneously defaming and blaspheming God. This is what James 3.9 says. It says, with the tongue, we bless God and curse human beings made in God's likeness. That that's the power of the tongue to actually uh, cause damage. And then he says obscene language. So obscene language in general um, refers to inappropriate language profanity. Uh, I would say, like, in Paul's mind, that is a category of something that is not good. But he's relating obscene language right now specifically in the, the, to the abusive manner that it can be used in. How, how people can abusively use obscene language against other people to tear other people down. And so Paul looks at then this category as well and sees it as a really clear category where, where the Colossians need to let Jesus have lordship, where they need to let him reign. Like if Jesus is really king, then he must be king over your words, over the way you use your words. So uh, three major problems with damaging words. The first is that they, they pervert the use of something that God created to relate to us. Do you know, like we're, we're, the, like, we're the only part of God's creation that get to use words. Like, communicate in really elaborate ways with each other. But not only that, like, God gave us words so that then he could reveal himself through Scripture. Like, he uses words to communicate himself to us. And not only that, but Jesus is called the divine word of God. Like Jesus, who shows us fully who God is, that like the, 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 the way that, that Scripture talks about Jesus is if he is God's word. So this is God, something God created to relate himself to us. And so whenever we use words to damage other people, what we're doing is we're perverting the use of something that God created to relate to us. The second thing is um, these words, they, they devalue the image of God in other people. So when we damage other people with our words, when we use our words in ways that bring other people down, we fail to recognize that the person sitting in front of us or the person that we're talking about behind their back, whatever it might be, we're failing to recognize that they are a person that God created in his image. And the third thing is that um, they come from a heart that is full of pride. Damaging words come from a heart that is full of pride. So um, I, uh, at times, I have the ability to express my frustration with certain things. Um, this happens mostly when I'm in the car and uh, I'm driving in the Chicagoland area and uh, people choose to do things that are maybe um, annoying to me. And, uh, and then in my annoyance, I actually probably um, 
I, I, I go a little beyond annoyance, maybe to anger or wrath. And um, it's funny, I, I will say things that indicate that my heart is not in a really good place. Um, I, I, I won't, um, I won't I, I'll just be like, I'll yell at them. I'll like have a conversation with the person to explain to them, do you understand why what you have done is wrong? Because you have cut me off. You have, you have personally devalued me as a person here on the road, and you have taken some opportunity to do your own thing. And, so, um, and then my mom, when I used to do this with my mom, my mom would tell me, you know they can't hear you, Alex. I know. Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. Um, so, so when I get into this realm of, of expressing frustration, I actually had somebody tell me, um, and this, is, this was a, a really powerful word for me at the time, um, imagine, imagine you in your nature and the things that you have chosen to do throughout your life. Imagine how potentially frustrating you could be to God. Imagine the potential for you to, to, to frustrate him, to make him even angry with, with your actions, with the things that you have done. But look at how patient he is with you. Look at how the word is long-suffering. How much he waits for you. How much he's willing to pursue you in Jesus. Consider these characteristics of God. Every time you're frustrated, every time you want to get angry with somebody, every time you want to yell at them, you want to slander them, you might even have malice in your heart towards them, consider how patient God is with us. Because because the level of our frustration against God, the things that we have done against God, don't even compare. Like there's no comparison to whatever that person did to us. Like it's not, they're not even on the same plane. So just imagine God's patience towards you. And then verse 9, he goes on. He says, do not lie to one another. So he finishes this list on words, and he takes an emphasis, and he, he emphasizes the value of truth. Um, all of these, these uh, so up to this point, he's been talking about systems of false teaching, um, uh, ways that people have been leading people in the Colossian church astray. And, and they're all based on lies. Um, and so he's saying the words that you use, don't use them to lie to one another. Um, there are certain communities that are around the, the, the Colossian culture that are formed on lies. And he's saying, do not lie to one another, but only let words of truth come from you. Only words of truth can describe the community that we are in. And this is what he's doing. He's talking about the ways that we relate to each other. He's like, don't use your words to damage each other. Don't lie to each other, but let this be a community where truth reigns supreme, where love in our words reigns supreme, where Jesus is actually shown to be king over the way that we use our words. And then he goes on, verse 9. says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So... I mean, this is, again, so he said something to us, and he's now reminding us of our identity, who we are in Jesus. He's saying, you have put off the old self, the, the old practices. Christ is king now, and you, and you have a new self. He has given you a renewed life. And that is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So these old ways of operating, and, and honestly, they're ways that we're still inclined to operate if we're being honest. But they don't have a, a part of the new life that Jesus has given us. 
So in giving us that, that new life and giving us hope and in paying our debt so that we could be made new, something amazing happens. Jesus actually restores our souls. He, he, he makes us into new people who, who don't want what, what our own desires want, who don't want things for ourselves, but want to give glory to our king. And so what we have to decide is this amazing thing that Jesus has done for us is if we, out of thankful hearts, that love our Savior, that, that, that are so grateful for what he has done, what we have to decide is if we are actually going to submit to him as king. Does he get to be king over the ways that we use our body? Does he get to be king over the ways that we use our words? Because Paul's main point in all of this is simply, Jesus wants to rule every single part of us. Jesus is not content with having only bits and pieces, having only the part of us that wants, uh, call it fire insurance, or wants to be saved from punishment. No, Jesus wants every single piece of us. He's not content with just the small pieces. And then he says in verse 11, Here there's not Greek and Jew. Here there's not circumcised and uncircumcised. Here there's not bar- barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So, so the old ways, because we did have old ways of identifying. We had old ways of defining ourselves. He said that's done away with. The old things that used to define us are now out the window. And now our identity in Christ is everything. Who we are in Jesus is everything. So this is what Jesus does. When we have that identity, he leads us to speak in mercy. Not in anger or wrath, but in mercy. He leads us to live in purity. He leads us to to actually defy the cultures that he saved us out of. He leads us to recognize his rule in every single aspect of our lives. Okay, so what? So maybe I've been talking for a little bit and you have found, discovered something that needs to change. Um, Maybe Jesus has described or pointed out to you something that needs to change. And so you need to ask the question, okay, what do I do about that? How do I I resolve this? How do I move forward from here? Um, So so I have uh, a few steps. First of all, I'd say pray. Um, the, the first step in overcoming anything is admitting to God your weakness and admitting your need to Him. Um, and then I'd say commit. Whatever, whatever the thing is that you need to overcome, maybe you use your words to tear down people in awful ways sometimes. And, and, and so then maybe you need to commit that um, I'm going to be really intentional about, about taking ownership of the way that I use my words so that I might lift other people up so that I, not, I might not tear them down. Um, next, I would, I would say ask a trusted brother or sister for help. Um, if, you, if you found something that needs to change and you're trying to figure out what to do, I'd say, say the next step is not, not just accountability, like that's not what I'm talking about, but you need somebody who's going to love you in the midst of the situation. If you've decided that you need to take some steps away from something, you need, to, you need somebody to come alongside you to help you bear that burden. Somebody who can maybe point you in the right direction, who can help you get through this. And then finally, um, the last thing I would say, 
So some pain from the things that we've been talking about, whether, whether it's the way that we use our words, whether we have tendencies towards anger, or, or um, you know, maybe, maybe you have some past pain related uh, to something sexual in your life. That, that can be a reality. And so I would say um, there, there are times when seeing a Christian counselor can be really, really valuable. Um, and I don't want to diminish that, that possibility in your life. If that's, if that's a step that seems like it would be right and good, I would encourage you to take that step. Um, okay, so I want to tell you um, a story um, uh, about the power of confession and the ability of confession to actually like radically be a catalyst for change in your life. So, um, so I, um, I, when I was a teenager in a college, I had been struggling in a particular area for a long time, um, but I had, uh, quote, kept it in the dark. I had not really talked to anybody about it. And, um, and then uh, I, I actually like, started making a whole lot of really bad decisions, uh, starting a, doing a whole lot of really sinful things, and, and kind of like showing Jesus, okay, like there are a whole p- bunch of pieces of my life that you don't have rule over, that you don't have lordship over. And then he started to convict me of that. And so, so then, this thing that I had struggled with for a long time, I, I came to a trusted friend of mine and I said, I confessed. Um, and my willingness to let go of that to that person, and actually, uh, it produced a catalyst for change in all of these other places in my life. So that my willingness to actually say, okay, I'm done trying to, to push out Jesus' lordship over this area of my life. I'm done with it. I'm going to let somebody else take me through it. I'm going to trust somebody else to, to walk with me through this situation. And actually, it, it became a massive catalyst for change. And this is, I, I can describe the same situation in the lives of plenty of people that I have walked alongside, that I have, um, that I have joined with in ministry even, people who have, who have who have seen something that they needed to confess, and they simply trusted another brother or sister. And then what happened is that, 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 that the Lord started to do an amazing work in their life because they were willing to shine the light on that piece of their life. What I want to encourage you today is that, that maybe the first step to that is, is simply trusting uh, a brother or sister enough to let them know that. Maybe that's how you start to let Jesus have some reign over your life in this area. So this is what I'm going to do. I am going to pray, and then, uh, and then we are going to transition into a time of communion. So would you pray with me, please? Uh, Lord, sometimes you speak really directly, um, and it can be uncomfortable. It can be difficult. And, and Lord, I can imagine maybe... Maybe there are people in here who don't even um, fall into the, any of the categories that, that we described this morning. Uh, but Lord, there, there is some category there that exists that, that maybe they're trying to keep you out of. Lord, I pray that you would bring those things to light, to mind. Or that we would honor you. Or that we would submit to your rule in our lives because Lord, the truth is you are so, so good to us. So much better than we deserve. And Lord, I pray that you would well up our hearts with thankfulness at who you are, that you would actually put inside of us a love for you that is willing to say, yes, absolutely, Lord, whatever you want in my life, let it be done. 
Lord, would you put this heart inside of us? Would you make this change? Lord, we humbly come before you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.